This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, welcome to Online Church today. My name is Kit Barker and it's a real privilege to be with you as we continue in the Deconstructing God series. Today, I've been asked to talk about the violence in the Old Testament. And it's a topic that I speak on quite regularly. It's a topic that I find troubles many of us, and it's a topic that's incredibly important to our understanding of the gospel uh, and to our, our faith and how we wrestle with how what we see in Scripture matches the world that we live in. I turned, well, I turned a certain age a couple of years ago, and when I did, I was on my way home for, on the way home from work, I stopped in and got a haircut at a friend's uh, barber shop in North Sydney, and on a whim, I decided to shave my beard. Now, I hadn't shaved my beard in over a decade. My young children hadn't seen me clean shaven. My oldest one may have, but he was very small. And so I was turning up to my birthday dinner without warning them that I'd shaved my beard. Now, here's a photo of what I looked like before and after. This is the same uh, shot at work the day after I shaved my beard. As you can see, uh, I didn't recognize myself and my kids had a hard time recognizing me. I turned up to this small Italian restaurant early and I was there by myself. I saw them come to the door. I stood up at the table, and as they walked in, they looked right past me. I don't know if they thought I was a waiter or just a stranger there to greet them, but they didn't even look at me until my wife walked in, and then she started giggling, and my kids started crying. And then I realized that perhaps I should have warned them. The whole night, my eldest son was drawing uh, sad faces on the paper uh, table, the, the tablecloth. And for the next week, my wife had a hard time hugging and kissing me because she felt strange with this stranger. I wonder, I wonder if that's how we sometimes think about the God in the Old Testament. We're used to one picture of who God is, a comfortable picture, a warm picture, a picture we're uh, used to embracing. But when we go to the Old Testament, we see someone who looks different who looks like a stranger, who doesn't look like someone we would want to trust or necessarily want to worship, someone we don't understand, someone we don't know. I think that's a pretty common experience. And that's because when we, when we go to the Old Testament, we see all kinds of uh, detailed stories of traumatic and horrific acts of violence. Some are on the hands of people involved in those stories, but some are at the request of God. And I'd like to read just one well-known uh, couple of verses. When Saul is asked by God to destroy a town of Amalekites. This, is, this uh, scene comes from 1 Samuel and it's chapter 15. And Samuel says to Saul, verse 1, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, 
attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This wasn't an isolated incident. The people had been in the land for a few hundred years now. The Israelites had come out of Egypt and been in the land. And in all of that time, they were supposed to have done this already. God had commanded them back in Deuteronomy to wipe out the people, the Canaanites living in the land, to wipe them out as they moved in, to destroy them totally. In fact, in this story, uh, Saul is reprimanded because he doesn't wipe them out totally. He keeps the king alive and he keeps some of the livestock for himself. And God wanted all of them destroyed, every living thing. The phrase is often, everything that breathes must be put to death. And we see a scene like this in the Old Testament and we think, is this the Jesus that I know? Would Jesus have asked Saul to kill the Amalekites down to every living thing that breathes, children, women, cattle, sheep, donkeys and camels? Would Jesus have asked the Israelites to drive out the nations before them, killing whole towns? Well, these portraits in the Old Testament are disturbing and they're pervasive. They're pervasive in that you go from book to book and you see the violence in the Old Testament almost at every turn, whether it's the flood in Genesis where God destroys and recreates the whole world, whether it's the taking of the promised land and the destruction of the Canaanites here in Samuel, whether it's the exile where God allows his own people to be overrun by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, so much so that they have to starve inside Jerusalem and they begin eating their children the kinds of horror of siege warfare that is inflicted upon them. Some see these scenes throughout the Old Testament and they find it simpler and easier just to reject this picture of God as something we can believe in, something we can see in the life and person of Jesus. It just can't be the same person. The Old Testament, as you might be aware, has then proven to be fertile ground for those who want to attack the Christian faith. They point to the Old Testament and uh, can't believe that Christians would believe in this kind of God. Richard Dawkins is a, a classic example of this, and I'll read a quote for you. It'll appear here on the screen. He says this about the Old Testament and about particularly about the Canaanites being driven from the land. He, he states, the ethnic cleansing begun in the time of Moses is brought to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua, a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. And the Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. I think many people see the Old Testament this way, something to be avoided. In fact, I was giving a similar talk a couple of years ago and uh, the 
leaders at the church had put uh, an advertisement out saying that I was coming and giving the topic uh, of the week. And they reported back to me that there might be a really small turnout. When people heard that I was going to speak about the violence in the Bible, they told the minister that they just weren't going to come. Now, thankfully, that morning, there were a few more than anticipated, and even a couple of the people turned up and and admitted to me that they weren't going to come that day, but were glad that they were able to spend the time wrestling with it. I wonder where you're at with this portrait of who God is, your engagement with the God of the Old Testament. Is it easy just to uh, easier just to neglect or remove this part of Scripture from our faith? The great Christian theologian C.S. Lewis uh, said something similar about the Psalms when he wrestled with those parts of the Psalms where the psalmist seems angry and cries out to God to judge his enemies. He says something like, "The bad parts just won't come away clean." As you may have noticed, they are intertwined with the most exquisite things. In this case, Lewis is referring to all of the beauty of the Psalms where he pours, they pour out their faith to God. How are they intertwined with these cries for justice and cries for vengeance? But similarly, throughout the Old Testament, the beauty of God's deliverance, the beauty of God's gracious redemption of a people out of Egypt, for example, is combined with his fury and his wrath and his judgment and destruction. So one possible solution, I guess, is to remove parts of the Old Testament that we're not comfortable with. But as Lewis remarks, those bad parts just don't come away clean. We end up remaking the Old Testament and remaking God in the way we want him to be, rather than engaging the text that he's given us, engaging God in his own self-revelation in the scriptures. The solution is not to remove parts of the Bible. The solution isn't to make the problem smaller, remove those parts we don't like. The way to a solution is actually to recognise that the problem is much bigger. It's much bigger than a few verses in Samuel. It's much bigger than the destruction of Canaanites. It's much bigger than the flood or even the exile of God's people. I want us to take us to just a couple of New Testament portraits of Jesus where we'll see the violence of the Old Testament is reflected in in Jesus and his life and ministry in the New Testament. The first is from John 2. In John chapter 2, a famous scene where Jesus walks into the temple and sees people taking advantage of those in the community, exploiting them for their own financial gain. And he goes away and crafts whips in order to drive the money changers out of the temple. In other parts of the Gospels, he warns towns against their unbelief. He warns individuals against the judgment that will come against them. And perhaps the most chilling scene is his return in the book of Revelation. Let me read a few verses where we see Jesus come as God's king in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, of mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. A picture of the return of Jesus with the armies of heaven come to extend his reign and rule and kingdom to all creation and to destroy all those who have been opposed to him. There's much more that could be said about the portraits of Jesus in the New Testament, but my point here is a simple one. We don't have a different picture of God, a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. What we have is more of God. In the Old Testament, we see God as gracious and patient with the people who t- constantly turn away from him, whom he constantly cries out to and who, who he continues to save. A gracious and merciful God, a holy God that can't be approached by sinful people unless they make themselves clean. And in the New Testament, we see God's mercy, love, grace, all those qualities. We also see his holiness, and his holiness means just judgment, wrath, violence. We don't have a different God. We just have more of the same God. It strikes me as strange that people have this have this understanding that the Old Testament picture of God is vastly different from the New. Perhaps I've wondered it's because the details are given to us in the Old Testament. We see descriptions of families and people who are coming under judgment. It's a bit more grotesque and graphic. But when we get to the New Testament, we're not talking about individuals and families or even nations. We're talking about all people. Slave and free, small and great. The scale of God's just judgment that comes from his holiness is terrifying. It's hard to comprehend. My argument really is that the Old Testament is not more violent than the New. It's the other way around. Just as we see more of God's love and compassion in the New Testament, we see more of God's holiness and more of God's just judgment in his wrath. That really hasn't solved the problem for us, I know. But it gives us two two choices. We can either reject parts of Scripture and remake God in our own image. Remake God the way we want him to. 
Or we can accept God's word, accept the picture of himself that he's given us and embrace the character of God as loving and compassionate, but also as holy and just in his judgment. There's, um, there's a strange, uh, I think, irony to the idea that we can uh, just remake and reshape God into a picture that we're more comfortable with. I don't think it becomes as comforting as we believe it, to, as we believe it will. Uh, many years ago now, I was um, traveling in North America while I was living there, and I had the opportunity to go to Alaska for a month. If you ever get the opportunity to go to Alaska for a month, highly recommended. Uh, it is fantastic. But one of the um, one of the scenes and one of the episodes uh, that I, that we went through there was um, well, there were many times I was scared for my life. Let's put it that way. Uh, bears, um, strange people who picked us up on the side of the road. But this time was far more controlled. We were simply going on a tour of the Denali National Park. We were driving out a few hours. They drop you off in the middle of nowhere. You get to walk around and, and see grizzly bears from hopefully a distance, which we did. And then you drive back. And I think it's a two or three hour trip, but it felt like a whole day. This is a national park, a mountainous national park. And there's one road in and one road out. And really, it's not much of a road. It's only one lane. It's a one lane dirt track carved into the side of a mountain, which is fine most of the time until you find the other tour bus coming back the other way, at which point the bus closest to the hill pulls up against the rocks, basically jams itself in against the edge, and the other bus creeps around, almost scraping the bus that's stationary. Now, on the way out, you're hugging the cliff, so you think it's not too bad. You just slowed down and waited for the other bus to pass. But on the way back, on the way back, I had a window seat overlooking the valley hundreds and hundreds of feet below. And there was one point on the bend of the mountain where the bus, that the bus had stopped and we're pulling up alongside it, just going so, so slow. And as I put my face up against the window, thinking if I lean any further, I'm going to tip the bus, I can't see the road. I'm looking down, I get my eye against the window thinking there is no road beneath these tires. And I'm thinking to myself, it's okay. This is, what the, this is what they do. This is what the drivers do. They do this all the time. They're professionals. They know how to get us home. They, they know how to uh, make sure that all these passengers aren't going to just tumble into the valley. I've never heard of it happening before. Surely it can't happen today. And then the other part of my mind's thinking, well, perhaps this is his summer job. It's only open three months a year. How, how experienced could he be? Maybe he's only just got his license and he's 19 years old. And this is his second run of the week. I don't know. Who is this guy? I've never met him before. And your mind runs away. At that moment, you want to believe in someone who is powerful, competent, experienced, and can get you home safely. Recreating, remaking God into a loving God who is neither holy nor just in his judgment 
is not someone that I want to put my hope in. I want a God who's going to make things right. I want a God who's going to stand up for the poor and the oppressed, for the marginalised, for those who have been tragically and horrifically harmed in this life. I want someone who's going to bring justice, who's going to renew creation, change the world, bring about the good that he's hoped and designed this world for. I don't want a God who's loving but can't do anything about the problems of this world and this creation. Perhaps even more ironic is that if we remove the violence from the Old Testament, remove the violence from the New Testament, remove God's great capacity for wrath and just judgment, we actually remove the one thing we think we're trying to hold on to, a God of love. I'll say that one more time. If we remove God's holiness and his capacity for great wrath, then we really remove God's love. Or at least we have no idea how much God loves us. Because it's only in God's wrath and in God's holiness and in his just judgment that his love for us is so deeply and profoundly revealed. I said before that the, the New Testament is more violent than the old on a scale we can't comprehend. And when we think about chapter 19 and Revelation and 20 and other places of judgment, it's hard to disagree with that. But I think there's an even more violent moment in the New Testament recorded in one place, in a number of places, but in Matthew 27, we see Jesus himself hanging on the cross having been whipped and tortured and physically beaten and nailed down to the tree, he cries out to his father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, all the wrath of God, all his just judgment on humanity, all of it for all time is poured out in fury on the one man who didn't deserve it, on the one man who takes it for you and for me, on the one man who willingly goes to suffer this wrath for us. We remove God's great capacity for wrath. We remove his holiness and his just judgment from who he is. And we don't really know how much God loves us, why Jesus died for us, what God has sacrificed in order to make new, you new, to make you one of his children, to make this world again and to recreate it into a good and beautiful place where wrath and just judgment won't be necessary. So we either reject the biblical account, remake God in our own image or in an image that we're comfortable with, or we accept God's self-revelation, accept God's word and embrace this God that we put our faith in. And in doing that, we have someone we can trust to bring us home. And we have someone that we know loves us more than we can ever, ever imagine.